Welcome to The Path and the Practice, a podcast dedicated to sharing the professional origin stories of the attorneys at Foley and Lardner LLP, a full-service law firm with over 1,000 lawyers across the U.S. and abroad. I'm your host, Alexis Robertson, Director of Diversity and Inclusion at Foley. In each episode of this podcast, you'll hear me in conversation with a different Foley attorney. You'll learn about each guest's unique background, path to law school, and path to Foley and Lardner. Essentially, you'll hear the stories you won't find on their professional bios. And of course, you'll learn a bit about their practice. Now, let's get to the episode. Today, I'm speaking with Adrian Jensen. Adrian is a litigation partner in Foley's Washington, D.C. office, focused on matters related to SEC, investigations, and defense. We start our conversation with Adrian talking about growing up in Claremont, California, his path to Harvey Mudd for college, and Columbia University for law school. This conversation is particularly fun for me because, as you'll soon hear, Adrian is a little bit understated. And that should come as no surprise because that's the case with most of the attorneys at the firm. But this was particularly fun because before we started this discussion, Adrian told me, just so you know, happy to be on the show, but I don't have an interesting path. Well, I don't want to spoil the episode, but I will say a path that includes a prophecy by a fortune teller is a path that I am interested to hear. So I think you'll enjoy learning more about Adrian. I think you'll also appreciate his explanation of what exactly it is he does in his SEC-focused practice, which is something that I just don't think we talk a lot about within the litigation sphere. And he also gives some great advice to law students on how to navigate a large law firm and how to build one's practice. I hope you enjoy our discussion. Adrian Jensen, welcome to the podcast. We're jumping right in. Please just give me your professional introduction. Uh, well, I don't really have a, a professional introduction candid ready to go, but my name is Adrian Jensen. I'm a partner in the Washington, D.C. office. I'm a member of the Securities Enforcement Practice, and I have been with Foley and Lardner for all uh, 15 years of my career. What do you mean you don't have a professional introduction candid ready to go? That was perfect. You probably said that so many times over the past 15 years. So thank you very much for that. We are going to jump right in, Adrian. Where are you from? Where did you grow up? So let's see. I was born in Texas, and I spent the first few years of my life in Texas. And then when I was, I think, five years old, we moved to California, and I grew up mostly in California. I ended up going to a college in California that was, depending on where you stood on campus, between, I would say, maybe three and five blocks away from my family home. So I did not travel very far. But then for law school, I ended up going to uh, Columbia, New York. All right, we're going to break that up a little bit. So where specifically in California? Like name of the town? The uh, name of the town is uh, Claremont. So same place where the Claremont colleges are. I've heard of those colleges. What was it like growing up there? So before we get to you and you know maybe college, law school, what was it like as a kid growing up in Claremont, California? And what kind of kid were you? I would say that it was idyllic in many ways. It is a suburb, but it is, I would say, a very walkable suburb. There was sort of a shopping and uh, dining area that we called the village that was uh, a very short walk from the house. The colleges, of course, were very close by. Uh, the graduate university was just at the end of the block. And uh, so we had the advantage of all of the college campuses because, you know, they pour huge amounts of money into landscaping and, you know, developing a very nice sort of pedestrian environment. And so we had the advantage of all of that uh, when we were growing up. And you said you moved there from Texas to California when you were five. Did I get that right? I think that that's correct, yes. 
So you were only five, but I just wonder, that's a bit of a move. Do you recall if there was any culture shock? I don't know if it was maybe for your parents or what even, what precipitated the move, if you don't mind me asking. So my father was a radiologist and uh, he moved because his father was a radiologist before him. And I think he wanted to have a career that was not perhaps in the exact same circles that his father was in. Uh, so he moved out to California to join a radiology group there. And that's that's why we moved. I don't recall any particular culture shock, but I think at the age of five, You're not remember. You know, things, are, things are pretty similar no matter what. I'm sure it was different for my parents, but uh, but for me at least, it was yeah. not, not the most memorable. Before I get to the why law school, mm-hmm. I'm just curious, and I don't know if there's anything that stands out as I try, you know, here I am trying to dig into people's childhoods, but... So what what kind of kid were you? If if I met you when you were in middle school, you know, is there kind of a, a snapshot of what what Adrian was like then? I would say that I was extremely introverted. That I spent most of my time indoors, and that I spent an awful lot of time reading books that were not contemporary or not cont- that were older. <laughs> Tell me more about old books. Yes, simply old old books. Simply because that's what was in the library at home. So, I mean, I did read sort of recent things as well, but uh, I ended up reading probably more than my fair share of you know nineteenth century and eighteenth century you know British novels and so on, just because that's what was available. And we had, uh, for example, this very very old book of what at the time must have been horribly outdated science facts, including lots of speculation about what it would be like when men were actually finally on the moon, that I spent an awful lot of time reading when I was a child. I was aware, of course, that we had actually been to the moon, but um, this had been written before that. And so, you know, it was, we had a lot of things, I think, from my parents' childhood, uh, childhoods, and that was the library that I grew up with. That is fantastic. I appreciate you for sharing that. So we are getting law students who are starting to listen to the podcast. And so not just to overly pry into people's lives, but I love getting a sense of sort of who someone is, because I'm convinced there is a good chance someone will listen who will identify with that. And so that is why I ask. But now I'm curious, start tracing that path for me to law school. I'm guessing you weren't in middle school saying, hey, I want to be a lawyer. So when was that seed planted and how did that happen? So I guess there's there's two seeds that were planted. The first is, when did I actually think that I might become a lawyer? I did not think that until, oh, I would say, about midway through my senior year of college. At the time, I was going to a school called Harvey Mudd, which specializes in mathematics and engineering. I was a very, very average math student. I think there were 24 students in uh, graduating with a math degree my year, and I think I was number 12 out of 24. So bog standard, absolutely average, nothing exceptional about me. We were graduating into the middle of a recession. It was uh, 2002. Uh, I think the the tech crash had been 2001, and then we had 9-11. And uh, so actually, I guess for me, it was 2001 because I graduated 2002. So jobs were somewhat scarce, and I had to find something to do after I graduated. So some of my call, some of my uh, classmates were uh, were going to teach English abroad, things like that, just somewhere to go and park themselves. Many of them were going on to masters and PhD uh, programs, but uh, as I said, I was I was a very average math student, and that was not. I mean, I, I suppose I could probably have found a master's program, but I would never be a great mathematician. But your focus while you were in college was math? Like you'd gone to school to focus on that? Or tell me more about that as well. I'd originally actually wanted to do physics. 
But physics requires that you do labs, and I did not have the attention to detail necessary to do to do really well at labs, even very basic labs. And uh, so I ended up doing mathematics because uh, while in high school I'd taken actually a number of courses at this college, as I said, the college was was right near to to the the family home, and. So I had finished, I would say, maybe a third or so of the required courses for the math major by the time I matriculated. So I just sort of finished the math major just sort of in the course. I was that far along, I might as well finish it. Um, and I enjoyed it. It was fun. But was I good at it? Well, particularly good at it. I also started studying linguistics uh, while I was midway through, which was also fun because I like languages and I also like making funny sounds. Well, Adrian, can we pause right there? Because before getting you on the show, one thing I told you is I think you have a fantastic voice. I wouldn't have been surprised if you've done some sort of voice work in your life. But so for you to say you've also spent some time, and I realize the tone of one's voice and linguistics are not the exact same study, but I just find it really interesting that you should you should say that. Oh. Okay. <laughs> what did you and what was the draw to linguistics? So you did you you added that as an interest or how did that come about? So my college could not offer a degree in linguistics, but my college is one of or was one of many many well not many a couple of different colleges in the area. So other colleges that probably more law students may be familiar with would be Pomona College or Scripps College, Claremont McKenna, uh, formerly Claremont Men's College, and also Pitzer. And uh, so Pomona and Pitzer offered a linguistics degree, and so they had a number of courses there. And uh, so midway through, I started taking courses in linguistics because I'd enjoyed it. As I said, the draw to linguistics was I like foreign languages, and I also like making funny sounds. So uh, these are two things that are quite prominent in linguistics. And uh, so I, I ended up taking there, again, enough courses that uh, all I really needed to do was some sort of thesis or paper to complete the requirements for uh, not a linguistics degree, because again, my college couldn't award a linguistics degree, but sort of like a degree equivalent. I, I forget exactly how that all worked. But so I went through that as well. Yeah, it doesn't sound like law school's on, on the radar at all. So how does this come about? <laughs> yes. Yeah, so I was looking for something to do after I graduated. And as I think many, many people do, law school popped up as an option because there's no prerequisites. In my particular case, I had never really thought about law school as an option before. But when I was born, my grandmother had gone to a fortune teller, whom she herself had been going to uh, since she was a teenager, I think. This fortune teller apparently told her that I was destined for a career in the law. So when I was casting about looking for something that I could do after I graduate, the family told me, oh, hey, why don't you apply to law school? And of course, no academic prerequisites for law school. You could apply with any sort of background at all, whether you have a math background, linguistics background, or you know, an arts background. And I'm sorry, but do you realize how unfair it is what you just did here? In the most of just the the way you said it is that you know it's the the most normal thing ever. It happened to be that my grandmother mm -hmm. had had a fortune teller tell her that I would go to law school. And you just said that as if that story is the same as I went to you know, grab a cup of coffee this morning and you have moved on. <laughs> and I do have to backtrack just a little, just need to pause on that because I think that is a fantastic story. I, I feel that I should rise to your level of, of decorum and just keep myself, not, you know, I shouldn't cackle in the background with laughter as you say that. But when was that story told to you? Had you been told at some point about this, you know, I, I want to call it the prophecy almost, but, but go on. So I think that I had actually been told this when I was young, but I had ignored it because, you know, I don't actually believe in fortune telling. Functionally, I may behave as though I believe in fortune telling, but I don't actually believe in fortune telling. 
and so, you know, I suppose I'd been been told, but it went in one ear and went out the other. But uh, when you have no plan in place and you don't really know what you're going to be doing, uh, you know. That sounds pretty good. And so whether it was destined and already written in the stars or whether having known that you went ahead and made it true, that is what happened. So so then what? You're like, I'm going to give law school a go. What was that process like for you? Where did you look? Just tell me more. Well, so by the time I was applying to law school, I think the majority of law schools had uh, basically a common application. So you could essentially do one application, one essay, maybe with some very slight variations. So you don't say that you, you know, you're applying to Yale when it's actually applying to Harvard or something like that. But uh, but essentially the same the same data. You'd have the same transcript, same recommendation letters, same uh, same application essay for all of them, and so. Uh, I forget how many how many schools I picked. Uh, there were probably seven or eight, and uh, I just sent off the same application to them. One thing I do recall is that some 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 schools required multiple essays, and so I didn't apply to them because I'd only written one. But you know, at the time, there were a number of different things that I was considering. Law school was not sort of the the, the sole goal for me, and so after I'd uh, I'd taken care of you know the LSAT and taken care of the application process, I sent the applications off. I think there were some interviews and things, but that was just one track that I was considering, and there were other tracks that I was also yeah. What were those other tracks, by the way? What what were you considering? Well, one of the other ones that I had actually wanted to do was look into potentially a career in the foreign service. My grandfather had been a diplomat in the service of the Republic of Korea, and so you know I respected him enormously, and uh, so I thought about the possibility of well, maybe I'll do that for the United States. Uh, but I was too young. I think you have to be 20 years old to sit for the foreign service exam, and I was only 19 at the time. And I think you have to be 21 to actually start. So I would have had a year sitting around doing nothing anyway. So that didn't really happen. I also applied to graduate school in linguistics, but um, I only applied to, I think, two programs because I wasn't applying because I wanted to go to graduate school. It was specifically that you know, there are some people that I would like to study with, but I wasn't accepted to any of them, which, you know, is not surprising. Did you graduate early at all or? Yeah, I graduated. Well, I did a full four years in, in college, but I entered college two years early. Wow. Okay. We just skipped right over that. That is, you don't hear that every day. That's really interesting. Okay. <laughs> I think it is. You think it's no big deal, but that's really interesting. So you're you're actually a little bit younger and not that the two years would have made all the difference in terms of you knowing what to do. But like you said, you're considering a lot of this stuff at like, 19 or so as you're trying to figure things out 16 actually but no yeah sorry. yeah but after you graduated or you know, yeah, that, that oh, yes. you know after i graduated college would, i'd have been 19 and then 20 yeah the only way that that really impacted me was and it didn't really impact me was when i actually started at law school of course you know there's wine and cheese receptions and things technically i was underage so other than that not really any impact. Yeah, I experienced that a little bit with college. So I'm a, I'm a little bit young for my my year. Not two years ahead, but when I started or when I first went to college, I was still 17. Mm-hmm. And so there were certain things, you know, you need, I don't know, you needed to visit the local, I don't know, clinic or whatever. And there's something you need to sign. And technically at 17, you, uh, you need your parents supposed, to sign. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> so I, I, I had, and then a couple of weeks later, I, you know, I was the appropriate age, but that that's interesting. Well, and I, I love that you shared that because And one of the reasons I ask is I think, you know, we pull up your bio on Foley. You know, you're a partner at Foley focused on corporate transactional work. And so we don't often know the other interests that people have or the other things that they sort of, you know, could have pursued 
but didn't. We only see you as you are are now. So I just think that adds such a richness to your story just to hear about about those other interests. But as you said, those other things, they they didn't work out. And you were in California for most, most of your life, but you went to Columbia for law school. Did it were you interested in going somewhere new or going to New York? Or was did it just work out that Columbia was the the best opportunity for you? So this is perhaps a little bit embarrassing to admit, but there's been so many embarrassing things I've already said. I literally just went down the list of schools that I was accepted into, and it was the best one I was I was expected accepted into. So that's where I went. So there you go. Uh, I understood at that point that you know the the legal profession there's you know a lot of weight that's placed on you know whatever the rank of the school you went to, and so. You know, if the opportunity is open to me, I might as well take it. Good idea. And hey, at the risk of further embarrassing you, I have to say, I think saying you picked the best school you got into, I don't think that's embarrassing at all. And you also earlier mentioned that you just like weird sounds. So I, I just feel like in contrast, the law school thing makes a ton of sense. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we have, a, we still have a fair amount of time together, but I do have a lot I want to get through because we also have to talk about your practice. But I do want you to reflect on, for me, what that was like. You moved to New York. You're at Columbia. How was it adjusting to law school? Well, so it was certainly very different from math and science courses. But at the same time, I think it was perhaps less of an adjustment for me in some ways than it was for some other people. Because I think many people who end up going to Columbia, at least, or really any ranked law school, have the experience of being at the top of their class when they're an undergraduate or being, you know, you know, valedictorian or some sort of exceptional academic superstar. I've already told you I was like number 12 out of, I think, uh, 24 students in my math degree. Um, I think my class rank overall was a little bit higher, but, uh, but I was, you know, I was not an exceptional student. My GPA was, well, there wasn't a whole lot of uh, grade inflation at the school before, I think that they've they've changed that now because it is actually a massive disadvantage for for students graduating from Harvey Mudd to be graduating most of the time with like a B or a B minus average, you know. So when I think they had uh, sort of initial sort of orientation, there were I don't think they did the the medical school where they said like look to your left, look to your right. You know, three years, one of you is going to be gone thing. But uh, it was sort of the you know you've all been academic superstars. You can't all be academic superstars now. So, you know, some of you are going to have to get used to that. I was already used to it. I didn't have any sort of adjustment at that point. And then after that, you know, classes were, I would say, probably less challenging in many ways than math classes. Possibly it was just a better fit for my skill set doing, you know, topology or something. But, you know, the class requirements were, were much looser. You didn't have homework. And so the amount of study required to master the material was, at least in my experience, much, much lighter uh, than it had been in undergraduate. So the adjustment really was more, oh, well, it's, you know, a new a new city. And that was fun. Well, I'm just letting that sit for a bit because I, I definitely appreciate what you just said. But I'm now I have the added context of you are doing this a couple of years younger than a lot of the, the law students there. You may have been middle of the road, but it was for someone who had had graduated early. And it is amazing what you just said about it because it was different and because I'd been to a school that was so demanding academically, it did not, I don't know, it scared me because, you know, for a lot of people starting law school is like, oh my gosh, there's so much reading. All I do is study. But I just, I love that you had that different experience. So there were certainly adjustments, but it was maybe different than in the kind of stereotypical 
Mm-hmm. way. Well, and let's fast forward a bit. You know, actually, no, nope, I take that back because we talked about this briefly before we before we pressed record. So I'm not sure if you have any highlights or sort of wisdom you'd like to share about the law school experience. I got for you that it was many, many years ago. There may be something you want to say there, but I do want to cover what you mentioned about, about bar study and learn, knowing that you are an auditory learner. So before we started the podcast, uh, just so the listeners know, Adrian has like a, he has like a real recording mic. And so I couldn't help but ask, you know, you know what, why is that? And he happened to share that he found that when studying for the bar some time ago, you learned a lot more easily by, by listening. So you actually recorded a lot of what you wanted to learn. So I don't know if you could just elaborate on that, although I just kind of spoiled it for you, but. Yes. Well, no, I mean, I don't have a whole lot more to say than that, but, yeah. uh, but yes, as uh, she said, I, I think, especially if it's something that that requires a lot of rote learning, which, candidly, the bar exam does does require. I find that I learn much better just through audio than I do through reading and rereading and rereading. And so, when I was studying for the bar exam, what I did was I took all of my outlines and I recorded them, and then I just played them on endless repeat. Um, I mean, I broke them down into little pieces because if you take, you know, like four hours of stuff and then you repeat that endlessly, you're not going to retain anything. But if you take, if you break it down to like 15 minutes or 30 minutes and, and you just take those chunks and you repeat them endlessly, just sort of passively as you're going about your day and, you know, sometimes as you're actually reading stuff, then uh, I, I found that that was uh, much more effective for sort of almost word perfect retention. Of course, it only lasted as long as the bar exam. I've forgotten all of it now. But That's uh, right. That's, that's all you needed. Yes. Well, I just find that so helpful because I think whether it be law school study or bar study, it's very easy for people to want to study the way that everyone else is studying without realizing that we are all different and you may in fact learn differently. So whether you do something different for the bar or for law school, you know, don't blame me if it doesn't go well, but you say, Alexis said that I should probably study the way that I learned the best. (laughs) So I just think that is such a creative and smart way to do that. So I appreciate you talking about that. But let's fast forward a little bit, or maybe we're right on pace, actually. So how does Foley and Lardner come onto the scene? How do you learn about Foley? How do you end up working for Foley? So I, I learned about Foley in the same way that I think probably most people learn about the firms they end up working at, which is at uh, interview day. The, the law school set up interviews at the end of, I guess, the end of our first summer, I believe it was. And like everyone else, I went to interviews. I put in, I don't even know how many different firms, uh, but I put in a bunch of firms and, uh, you know, signed up for interview slots. And I got the interview slots and, uh, you know, went in for the on-campus interviews. So you summer, you probably end up being a summer associate. Yes, yes I ended up as a summer associate during my second summer. And I enjoyed my time there, and uh, I guess they thought I did a reasonably good job, and so they gave me an offer, and that was that. And the rest is history. Fifteen years later, here we are. Yes, yes. And I want to ask, so how did you figure out your practice area and your focus at Foley? Did you have inklings of it in law school, or was that something you determined as a summer? Why corporate? How corporate work? So I don't exactly do corporate work. I'm actually on the securities enforcement side, so it's more SEC investigations. Yes, and and apologies, (laughs) but thank you for clarifying that. So Adrian, what I'd like to ask you about now is your practice area and how you focus on the SEC work that you do. How were you exposed to it? How did you decide on it? Tell me more. So I think my first exposure to it was probably when I was a summer associate. I was one of the assignments that I had the, the, the pleasure of working on. Uh, was an SEC enforcement-related matter. I don't think it stood out to me particularly then, but during my third year of law school, I wouldn't say that I was 
particularly focused in the courses that I chose, but I did at least make a token effort to take courses that looked as though they might be somehow useful uh, to me in, in actual practice. So I think I took antitrust, I took securities, I took corporations, I think I took intellectual property, uh, because I think that those had been the areas that I'd had work over the summer. And then after I joined Foley, one of the first large matters that I was staffed on was uh, a large uh, securities investigation. It consumed, it, it was the first matter that consumed a substantial proportion of my time. I think I had, you know, bits and pieces of work uh, before that. Uh, but I ended up spending about a year on that one. And so all of the mid-level associates, all of the senior uh, counsel, all of uh, all of the partners that I had uh, got to know and ended up working with, uh, well, they were mostly in the securities enforcement group. And so that ended up being where my work came from, certainly as a junior associate and then as a mid-level associate, although there were some changes in, in the partnership uh, around the securities group. We had people leave, people join, and so on. Uh, that just continued to be where I got, I would say, probably 60 to 70% of my work, if not more. And so as you were matriculating at Foley, it sounds like you would do some maybe general litigation sort of work, but the bulk of your work was the SEC enforcement related work. And if you wouldn't mind, could you break down what that means? Because I do think there may be some listeners who maybe they've heard of the SEC. They can't, they're not really appreciating that relationship between, so what does a litigator do when a client has an issue with the SEC? What's happening there? So the Securities Exchange Commission is, well, they actually have a number of different functions, but uh, the matters that I'm usually involved on are matters dealing with uh, issuers, which is to say uh, companies that have issued uh, securities that are subject, usually stock, uh, that are subject to regulation by uh, the SEC. And those companies are required to file uh, periodic reports, uh, reporting on their financial condition and the operation of their business, uh, you know, quarterly and annually. And so one of the major areas of uh, SEC enforcement is going through those reports and identifying situations where the reports are inaccurate or misleading in some way, and then suing those companies to punish them for putting out false reports or misleading reports. And of course, we on the defense side defend the companies, and we defend the officers, and we defend the accountants who are involved in that. And uh, so... I mean that that is really sort of the the thousand foot level, ten thousand foot level description of the practice. Uh, then, in terms of the procedure, there's sort of a, a number of different steps. Um, if you're dealing with a public company, I think the best outcome for them is obviously everything goes away before anything's public. So that's sort of your first hope. But also, in a lot of cases, you know, companies sometimes also need to know, well, did something go wrong? And so they will frequently rely on outside counsel to perform an internal investigation to figure out what actually happened. And if something did happen, something went wrong, how can we prevent that from happening again in the future? And so that's a piece of our practice as well. And sometimes you know, companies will decide that they want to be in a cooperative posture with uh, their, their regulator, with the SEC. And so you, know, you will actually be under investigation by the SEC, but you'll also share information with the SEC to help the SEC understand, here's what went wrong, here's why it went wrong, we're fixing it, here's how we're fixing it, here's why it won't happen again, in the hopes that the SEC will go a little bit lighter on you. And uh, sometimes that works, and sometimes that doesn't. Sometimes, uh, sometimes the SEC will, you know, go full bore for an investigation. So they will call in witnesses for testimony, uh, and they will ultimately decide that they want to pursue an enforcement action against you. So sometimes 
that will end up being uh, handled uh, through an administrative trial, you know, through appeals and various uh, various other processes that may end up in an actual courthouse as well. Uh, and so it can just sort of escalate through through all those different uh, different levels. But uh, but I'm usually involved sort of at the the initial investigative stage and then in the direct back and forth with the enforcement uh, division of 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 the SEC. Thank you so much for that explanation. As you likely recall, in law school, you often hear about there's litigation. You learn about that. You learn about the federal rules. You may have this concept that there are there's other sort of work out there. But what I love about this podcast, it's an opportunity for me to get people who do do all sorts of things to really explain what they do. Um, and I know for me, even though I spent seven and a half years of my life as a litigator, I didn't touch anything involving the Securities and Exchange Commission. So, you know, someone might be like, Alexis, you're a I would have no idea what to say. I mean, and I'm, obviously I shouldn't now. I don't, <laughs> I'm licensed. I don't practice. Don't come to me for legal advice. But I, it's just my long way of saying, I really appreciate you going through that explanation. And I will ask a question that law students are probably likely to ask you if, you know, they're interviewing with the firm. But so what does your day look like? You touched on it a bit with, um, you tend, it sounds like you do a lot of the investigation sort of work, but if you could just elaborate on that for a moment, I would appreciate it. So I don't know that there is a typical day. And obviously with coronavirus, all of our days are somewhat different from what they had used to be. So, you know, sometimes the day is a whole bunch of calls with uh, calls with people, a bunch of interviews. Sometimes the day is we're on site and we're looking at uh, you know pouring through the company's uh, journal entries for the, the the support for their different accounting entries to go and see what it is. Sometimes it's you know sitting and making a presentation to company management. Sometimes we have an individual defendant uh, that we're assisting, and it's just eight hours of sitting in a conference room with uh, that individual defendant, you know, going through his his memory, trying to refresh his recollection with this document or that document. Sometimes it's, you know, we're going in for a meeting with the SEC uh, staff. So there's there's a lot of there's a lot of variation, although I suppose as I'm as I'm describing it now, the variation primarily involves whether we are sitting going through documents with a client, going through documents with an opponent, or sitting in a boardroom going through a presentation with people. But um, so there's there's a certain sameness to 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 the task, you know, whichever one it is. But um but I wouldn't say that there's really a typical day. It's just depends on uh, where you are in a particular matter and what uh, what the, what the needs of the moment happen to be. Thank you for for describing that. And another question I have for you, and I don't know if this is fair, but when I have, as you can imagine, it's a little bit easier for me when I have an associate on the podcast. They're a fourth year. There's just not as much to cover, frankly. But when I'm talking to someone who's a partner at the firm and it comes to reflections on your path at Foley, you know, we don't have the time for me to say, okay, what'd you do as a third year? And then how was it a senior counsel? And then what was it like when you made partner? But as you look on the th at back at the things you did to learn your practice area, credential yourself, um, and also on that path to partnership. I don't know, if, does anything stand out at you? Are there words of, of wisdom or re reflections you may have when you look back at you know what you did to get the skills you now have to advise clients on what, what you do? Or is it just a matter of putting in time and doing the work? I think it is a matter of putting in time and doing the work. I mean, obviously, if you put in time and you do the work, but the work that you end up doing is, you know, comparatively low-level work continually. I mean, if you're a first or second year, actually, I tend to think that although document review may be a little bit of drudgery, it's also the way that you get to learn how companies work because many people go into law practice without ever actually having worked in in a company environment, and so 
you don't really have any other opportunity to to get a sense of how you know management interacts with its employees or how people communicate within an organization. But if you if you're doing that as a sixth or seventh year, uh, you know you might you might think you, know, you should push for something different. I think, but so long as you know you are doing the work and you are doing the kind of work that is teaching you something new about the practice or about the industry or you know the clients that you're serving i think that that will help you progress i think that there's other things that you can do that are probably now more important than they have been in the past about uh, getting your name out not just within the firm but also externally uh, that once you're a mid level or a senior counsel you should be you should be diligent about but I think that that's also very dependent on sort of what what industry you're working in and sort of what 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 your niche practice is. In some practices, it's you know you can put your name out all you like, but uh, but uh, the the people who are who are you know assigning or referring work are people who you know you really want to meet them in person. And so if you don't have the opportunity to work with them directly in the course of other matters, you know they're not going to know who you are. Uh, in other cases, you know you have I think. Uh, this is not really so much true of securities enforcement, but it's true, I think, in some other in some other areas where a company may not have had any real contact with a national level law firm, but they have a problem that's come in. They need to find counsel, and they're just going to be googling around trying to go and find you know like who who has done an article, who's done a presentation on the problem that we're facing right now. Is they're just trying to go and put together a list of like whom can we ask? So I think it really depends on what what kind of work you're doing, but uh, getting your name out externally, I think, is also important. I appreciate that. And like, as you can see, I struggle a little bit with how to break down, you know, 15 years or in some, you know, 20 years or 30 years of someone's career, but I love just getting general reflections. And I'm actually going to switch gears a little bit because as you can imagine, as Director of Diversity and Inclusion, we can't get off the podcast without me at least mentioning this, that you are co-chair of our Asian Pacific Middle Eastern Attorneys Affinity Group. I think you've been co-chair of the group for some time. And I don't, I don't know if there's anything, you know, worth highlighting about the experience of a lawyer, uh, of being, you know, an Asian attorney in the big law world, or about the affinity group. But I, I'm mandated to raise it on the show. I just, I have to, Adrian. I don't have, a, I don't have a choice. Ah, uh, let me think. <laughs> I mean, I sort of struggle here. Um, First, because Asian is a very broad category, and I think that uh, you know, absolutely is. You know, East East Asian attorneys. You know, if we're if we're dealing with you know the stereotypes that that the clients or colleagues may bring to to the table, you know, East Asian attorneys will deal with different stereotypes from uh, from Indian uh, Indian American attorneys and and so on. And of course, in my particular case, I think people probably I'm I'm half Korean and half white, and so people probably don't look at my face and think, oh, that's an Asian. They'll probably think, you know, maybe he's Mexican or. Turkish or something. Well, it's funny you should say that though, because one thing I struggle with, even with the affinity group, is it's one affinity group, and this is not atypical at all. At most large law firms, you do have this one affinity group covering this huge swath of of people, and I think there's a discussion to be had later about you know ways we could change that. And there's also you know do you have a critical mass to have the the broken out groups, and also it's it's interesting you should say that. So my my children are biracial. They're, they're black and they're white. And I think if someone looks at them, they're not quite going to know, you know, you may, I don't know what they will, you will guess, but I, I, I've talked to my boys about that before, but I just think it's, it's something to bring up on the show because obviously through audio, no one can know our, our personal experiences, but you did mention that I think it was your grandfather was a Korean 
diplomat. diplomat yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm not quite sure how, you know, quote unquote, culturally Korean or whatever that may mean that one may be, but I just, I, I do think there may be some listeners who are like, Oh, I wish she would have asked him about X, Y, Z. So I do. And I, and I already feel bad. So I was like, Oh, I'm just putting you on the spot here. Yes. <laughs> but I do want to give you credit for the work that, that you're doing at the firm in leading the affinity group. We have a number of them and it's just, it's just so important. I think for attorneys to have that access and outlet to build connections in these environments that it's quite possible that an attorney could go a lot of their career without working with many diverse attorneys in their firm, depending on where they work. So yeah, that's all. I'm I'm just randomly riffing on on that right now, but I, but I appreciate the work that you and Jessica Joseph have been doing on the affinity group. Yes. Well, no, we're, we're happy to do it. Well, you know, as we wind down our time together, and you've already said a number of things that I just think are really useful for somebody contemplating a legal career. But when you look back, what are what are some of the reflections or advice you would give to somebody who's, you know, thinking about being a lawyer or perhaps they're in law school trying to figure things out? You know, are there, are there things you wish you knew or, or advice you'd like to share? Well, certainly when I was before I was applying to law school, I had no idea whatsoever what being a lawyer was like. And even as a law student, I would say I had almost no understanding of what the practice of law actually entailed. Uh, So if I were to go back and do it again, I probably would have said as a first year law student, you know, be more, you know, reach out and try and find practicing attorneys, young practicing attorneys, you know, sort of mid-level associates as well, and hear from them what practice is actually like. I realize there's probably some reluctance to do this because you don't want to seem stupid in front of people who potentially could be deciding whether or not to hire you two years down the line. But honestly, I would say, you know, don't hesitate because of that. You don't need to pretend that you know everything when you're a first-year law student. We don't think you're going to know everything when you're a first-year law student. In fact, if anything, if you if you act as though you think you know everything when you're a first-year law student, that's going to create a, sort of a somewhat negative negative impression. Feel free to ask people, you know, what is the practice of law actually like? What do you actually do? Because it's certainly not like the TV shows where you're in the courtroom every day saying objection. It's certainly not, not at a large law firm. And so it's a very different practice. Yes. TV shows where they are like, I have a trial tomorrow and then a deal closing three days after that. And then I'm filing a patent or something. I'm, I'm going to go and bring out surprise evidence at the very end. I didn't disclose it at all during the discovery process. It's just you know, shock him at trial. It's so important also because it's such a tremendous investment. And so... You know, you may be coming out hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt, and if not, you know, you were fortunate, and someone else paid for this tremendous investment in you. But just send that, send that email. You know, ask someone, do you have fifteen minutes for a phone call? I just think that's such mm-hmm. that's such wise advice. And I'm cutting you off, so I don't know if there's anything else you wanted to share. But that's such no, good I advice. Mean, really, you're sort of following on that. And look, if you discover that you don't think that law is going to be for you, I would say, you know. You shouldn't feel afraid to cut your losses either, uh, because there are, I think, so many people who end up practicing law, and they end up practicing law for just three or four years so they can pay off their law school debt. And so that means that it's taken up seven years of their life when maybe that isn't something that they wanted to do uh, or that they were really interested in. And so if you know you're in your first year and you realize this is not this is not for me, you know, I don't think that there's any shame in saying, okay, 
before I invest the next decade of my life in something that I don't enjoy, I don't want to think about doing something else. I think that you know that that can be a difficult decision for some people to make, but uh, there are, I think, a lot of people who, you know, who who are in law just just because they they ended up sort of in a, in a, in a debt hole, and you don't really want uh, you don't want that to be you. Absolutely. I mean, it wasn't me, but I'm sitting here and I'm like, are you talking about me? And no, I'm just kidding. No. <laughs> well, I am someone who later changed, but I think that's so powerful that if you you know you discover something isn't for you, it's okay to change your mind without making it even harder to do in the long run. And what you said also about, we assume that you're not going to know. And so just being like, I don't know, I'm asking you, tell me more. But I actually think it can create, and students may not know this, if you go into an interview, and not to pick on you, Adrian, but, and you for some reason act like you know everything about you know the, the Securities and Exchange Commission, and you're in front of an SEC lawyer, that is not probably the dynamic you'd like to have with them. You're better off trying to learn from that person who's been doing that work for, you know, a decade and a half versus coming in being like, I read Google. I read a Google article. Like I know what's going on here. It doesn't, it doesn't play well because I think there's so much to learn. And I think the continual curiosity is the hallmark of a really good lawyer. So for anyone to feel that they know it all and they haven't even started is not what you want to do. I mean, I would say even, you know, 15 years in, I, I definitely don't know it all. And I'm always happy to hear from people who are more experienced than I am, their thoughts and and insights. Because, yeah. again, like I've practiced mostly in the sort of one slice of what the SEC does. I don't know a whole lot about the, the broker-dealer regulation side of things or the investment company regulation side of things, you know. And uh, we have colleagues who are specialists in those areas who have, you know, been practicing for 30 years. And there's a lot that you could learn from everyone. Even from first-year associates who have who have just read a law school article, but you know, there you go. Exactly. <laughs> I have one more question for you that I, I normally don't ask, but for some reason I'm compelled to. Thoughts about practicing at Foley and Lardner, and what distinguishes either your practice at Foley or just distinguishes the firm for you and has really has kept you at Foley for the past 15 years. Just if there's anything worth, and you know, kind of like the the bragging about about the firm. Like, what are what's your experience been at Foley? Well, let's see. So I can't really compare it directly to any other firms because other than working as a, you know, summer associate, the Japanese firm, my first uh, my first summer of law school, I've never actually worked at another firm. In terms of why I haven't moved, I mean, you know, the I think the reasons that people will will move will frequently be things like they don't particularly like the work conditions or the work that they're getting is not work that is helping them develop or is just uninteresting to them. And neither of those conditions has been met for me. You know, the the working conditions have always been good. And the work itself has always been interesting, and uh, that has been enough to keep me. That is fantastic, and I love that you described it as the working conditions. <laughs> we yes, keep, we keep a clean factory floor here at Foley. <laughs> yes. No OSHA no violations. <laughs> I was just kidding. Well, Adrian, thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. My final, final question is: if somebody has, you know, questions and wants to reach out to you, can they feel free to find you on Foley's website and send you an email? Oh, certainly. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Adrian. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Path and the Practice. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and join us again next time. And if you did enjoy it, please share it, subscribe, and leave us a review as your feedback on the podcast is important to us. Also, please note that this podcast may be considered attorney advertising and is made available by Foley and Lardner LLP for informational purposes only. This podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship. Any opinions expressed herein do not necessarily reflect the views of Foley and Lardner, 
LLP, its partners, or its clients. Additionally, this podcast is not meant to convey the firm's legal position on behalf of any client, nor is it intended to convey specific legal advice.